A few months ago, the world was fixated on the Ever Given, a gigantic cargo ship that had gotten stuck in the Suez Canal, blocking traffic and jamming up the global shipping industry. While our colleague Joe Parkinson was reporting on the Ever Given, he stumbled upon a different story from the Suez Canal. He found it on an obscure shipping website, a short news article about a sailor who'd been trapped for four years on board a giant cargo ship, alone. He'd kind of fell into this bureaucratic Bermuda Triangle. And not only had he been alone, but the ship had been infested with rodents. He'd been short of food. His life had been upended. So when I first read it, I couldn't, couldn't really believe it. It was just such a small news item. And Joe wanted to find out more. How could a sailor be held on an empty ship for so long? What happened? So he started digging into the story, and he managed to get the sailor's phone number. His name is Mohammed Aisha. And I call him expecting nobody to pick up. And this voice comes on the other end of the line. And I said, if it's okay with you, I would really love to come to Egypt and, and meet you. He said, if you can get here, if you can navigate the bureaucracy to come and see me, I would love to see you. Welcome to The Journal, our show about money, business, and power. I'm Ryan Knudsen. It's Friday, May 21st. Coming up on the show, the story of Mohammed Aisha. This episode is brought to you by Vonage. With Vonage Video API, your developers can easily create custom video experiences tailored to your business. Enhance every conversation with live video, whether it's delivering faster tech support, improving customer service, or enabling interactive meetings and events. Unlock the true video potential of your business. Discover how at Vonage.com. So I arrive in Cairo and we set up a meeting with Mohammed. Hello. Hi, Mohammed. How are you? Fine, thank you. I'm just actually in a taxi on the way down to you at the moment. Joe met Mohammed Aisha a few weeks ago. The cargo ship that Mohammed was on was beached near the mouth of the Suez Canal, about a third of a mile offshore. And Suez is a military district, so it's all very kind of highly patrolled by the Egyptian army. Joe wasn't allowed to go on the ship, so Mohammed planned to swim and meet him on shore. I need about an, half an hour to be on shore. What time is it now? So we arranged to meet on the side of the beach. Okay, I will try to be there by 10 o'clock on the beach. When Joe and fellow reporter Drew Hinshaw arrived to meet Mohammed on that beach, they found themselves near a small village. From there, they could see the ship. It's named the MV Amman. And it's so gigantic from the village's perspective. It's almost blocking out the sun. Mohammed, who had changed into dry clothes, was waiting for them. And we have to basically find a safe place to go and speak, to not alert the authorities to the fact that we're there and to the fact that Mohammed is, is speaking to us. Joe wanted to understand how Mohammed had ended up in this strange situation. The story starts in 2017. Mohammed, originally from Syria, had been a sailor for eight years, and he had just begun what he thought would be a normal shipping gig. 
Mohammed took a job as the chief mate on the MV Amman. He was managing a 15-man crew. He boarded the ship in Saudi Arabia. They were supposed to travel from one international port to the next, transporting goods like flour and hay. But when they arrived at the Suez Canal in Egypt, there was a snag. The ship was impounded by the Egyptian authorities um, for unpaid debts, $21,500. The ship's owner had to pay the Egyptian authorities before the ship could leave. This wasn't so unusual. Cargo ships like the MV Amman are often held for brief periods while their debts are resolved. So the crew settled in for what they thought would be just a few weeks. But those weeks dragged on into months, and the owner still didn't pay. And the longer they waited, the more the debt increased. Staying in a port longer meant the crew needed more supplies like food and fuel. And as it got delivered, the bills mounted. And the sailors start to realize, as they're playing chess, as they're playing backgammon, as they're trying to exercise, that something's not quite right. Another sign something wasn't right? The crew members themselves weren't getting paid. So as the months dragged on, the men were faced with a decision. Either sign off and leave the boat and likely lose their back pay, or keep waiting it out and hope that the owner would come through with the money. At first, just a few sailors left. But five months after the boat was detained, the crew had dwindled to just a handful. And as Muhammad told Joe, he decided to leave too. That was the time when I found out that... I can't go home. When Mohammed called the authorities to let them know he was leaving, they told him he wasn't allowed to. Because five months earlier, when the boat had first been stopped, Mohammed did something he would later come to regret. He signed a document from the Port Authority. He thought at the time that it wasn't a big deal. His captain and the authorities said it was routine. They said that this is very irregular. I didn't even hesitate to sign. The document, as it turns out, had made Mohammed the ship's legal guardian. In a normal situation, all this would have done was make him responsible for some administrative tasks, things like making sure the boat had its proper paperwork as it went through different ports. But because the ship's owner wasn't paying his debts, this made the legal guardianship a much bigger deal. The port authority could hold Mohammed responsible for the boat as long as the bills went unpaid. The owner of the boat is a company called Tylo Shipping, but finding the person who owns the company was actually really difficult. Mohammed said the owner was a man named Yusuf bin Sanad, but when Joe contacted Sanad, he said he wasn't the owner, just an employee. We looked everywhere for the documentation. We asked the Bahraini authorities as well, and um, no one would provide us with uh, the paperwork. But regardless of who the owner was, When Mohammed tried to leave the ship that day in November 2017, the authorities said, no, you are the legal guardian and you're responsible for this ship. You are, in essence, being held as collateral until the fines are paid and the ship can be released. And that's when he realizes, I'm stuck. I didn't even know what it means. I've been the legal guardian of the ship for now... uh... I don't even know. Do you start to panic? Or yeah, of course I've started to panic. What do you mean, no? What, am you going to help me here against my will? There is nothing you can do. Bang your head against the wall. This is a f***ed up law. You held me on a ship that's not mine. In a country that's not mine. I'm not getting paid. This is a f***ed up law. 
There are international treaties and regulations that help prevent situations like this, but the country where the boat is from, Bahrain, hasn't adopted them. Is Mohammed's story unique? No, unfortunately. It's extreme, definitely. But it's not unique. And in fact, it's becoming increasingly common. Last year, about around 1,000 sailors were abandoned at sea, according to uh, the International Maritime Organization. This has long been a problem, going back to kind of, you know, the days of buccaneering ships and pirates that uh, unscrupulous owners would potentially abandon ship and leave people on board. Once he realized he couldn't leave, Mohammed started to contact everyone he could think of. Lawyers, the seafarers' union, governments. He sent out dozens of emails, made phone calls, until he had no choice but to just wait for a response. In the meantime, Mohammed tried to stay occupied with the chores on board. At this point, the ship was anchored five miles offshore, floating like a small island in the Red Sea. Aside from a few remaining crew members, the only voices he heard came in through his cell phone. I was used to my mother calling me every day. There, there isn't a day that passed without her calling me. And uh, if uh, I didn't answer, yeah. not only another call, I would yeah. get yelled at. <laughs> Mom, I was asleep. I was busy. Your mother is calling you and you're busy. I think, you know, Mohammed's mother was like the central person in his life. He would talk to her every day. And in the middle of 2018, they started to speak less. In the year that Mohammed had now been on board waiting, his mother had developed cancer and her health started to decline. So there was a period and she stopped to call. Uh, no one was telling me anything. But I kind of figured out on my own, you know, she was getting worse and worse. And then one of my relatives told me that she died. It was by far the worst moment of my life. Mohammed says himself he didn't think he was then going to survive. It's one thing to to lose your mother. It's another thing to lose your mother when you're hundreds of miles away. It's another thing entirely to not be able to talk to anybody about it and to have to endure that grief and that pain on your own inside this 330-foot floating prison. In August of 2019, about two and a half years since he first boarded the MV Amman, the final crew member left. Mohammed was now totally alone. And with the debt still mounting, the company that had been delivering supplies came less and less often. The food goes from, you know, being quite healthy, you know, proteins and starches and tin foods down to just bread or just bread and cheese. And Mohammed has, you know, at certain points is just eating a few uh, mouthfuls of stale bread uh, on a given day. Um, but after a certain point, you know, the, um, the resources get so thin that he starts to get really sick. And cra- crazily, um, he starts to suffer some of the um, symptoms of scurvy, which is, you know, vitamin depletion. And his teeth, uh, several of his teeth start to fall out. Not only was the food getting low, but even the fuel that kept the generators running began to dwindle. And without those generators, life on board got very uncomfortable. 
inside is a furnace. And after it's uh, night, uh, after uh, the sunset, it's still radiating heat. Our generators were out of order by, by then, so there was no air conditioning. At night, the only place Mohammed could manage to sleep was in the lower deck, below the waterline. I think without that, I might have died. You're underwater. Relatively cool. So I go to the lower place in the engine room, surrounded by water, and I will get some sleep. Living there, miles offshore, alone and in the heat, Mohammed felt completely isolated. If I died in the middle of the night, if I fell and hit my head, no one would realize I'm alone in the dark, literally. He starts to become afraid of the things that previously were very routine and very humdrum. You know, this is a guy who loves the ocean, uh, understands and is very, very well aware of the sounds of these ships, and yet these sounds now start to, to frighten him. He feels spirits, ghosts, you name it he starts to feel haunted by the same noises that once upon a time would have, you know, that he would have uh, thought were very normal. What kind of noises does he hear? So a a, a boat like this, you know, a kind of huge hulking great piece of of metal that's in the sea at the mercy of, of, of the winds and the tide, it makes a lot of noise. It's, you know, can be banging and shrieking, kind of screeching of metal contorting groaning, yawning, all of these things Muhammad described. And the sharp sounds, especially when he was trying to get some sleep, really started to terrify him. And at certain points, he says he would jump up with a start and go running to try and chase noises that he didn't know the origin of. You know, he'd go running into the bowels of the ship to try and hide from noises that he couldn't see. Um, And he was clearly, at this point, suffering from some, starting to suffer from some delusions. Wow. And did he ever try to just escape? It's a strange thing to imagine, isn't it? That you're on that boat and you know how to get on a lifeboat and just go to shore. But I think Mohammed, being an experienced sailor, knowing that he was in one of the most militarized, heavily guarded maritime areas on Earth, understood how difficult it would be to run away. After the break, Muhammad's situation starts to change. This episode is brought to you by Mercury. There's an art to making the complex feel simple. Everything should be in sync so that even the smallest part serves a bigger purpose. Simplicity can transform your business operations. That's why Mercury powers your financial workflows from the bank account, giving ambitious companies like yours the precision, control, and focus they need to perform at their best. Apply in minutes at mercury.com. This episode is brought to you by Vonage. With Vonage Video API, your developers can easily create custom video experiences tailored to your business. Enhance every conversation with live video, whether it's delivering faster tech support, improving customer service, or enabling interactive meetings and events. Unlock the true video potential of your business. Discover how at Vonage.com. Early 
one morning in March of 2020, about three years since he first boarded the MV Amman, Mohammed was woken up by a new feeling. The boat had started to drift. There was a sort of historic storm in the Suez Canal. Really, really high winds that caused a lot of, um, a lot of issues at that time. And the MV Amman was not immune. The boat was anchored, but the storms were so fierce that the anchor started to drag. Mohammed was terrified as he felt the boat slowly moving through the water, afraid it would crash into a nearby oil tanker or capsize. It drifted all through the night. The next morning, when Mohammed went out on deck to look around, things were different. By the morning, the boat is much, much closer to land, and it's effectively been beached next to a village right at the mouth of the Suez Canal. And Mohammed, you know, has this kind of realization that this, he, he's gone from thinking that he could possibly lose his life in this storm to feeling like maybe now he's going to be saved. There's houses, there's, the, there's cars, there's roads in the distance. There's people, the villagers themselves. He can see, you know, wading by the shore in the Red Sea. And it felt like, you know, possibly now that he was close to, to, to being able to come off the boat. Was he close enough to swim to shore? He was close enough. Mohammed worked up the courage to try to swim, but he was nervous. I'm not that tough of a guy. You can see me. I'm actually a very fragile guy. I have to wait for a day when there is no wave, no wind, to try and swim to shore. He arrives on the beach next to the police station and this military checkpoint, this kind of bedraggled, weak, soaked figure. And the military say to him, what are you doing here? I told them that I just need to get some essentials under their observation, okay? I got some food, I got some water. Two, three hours now, I'm going back to the ship. Thank you. Mohammed made a deal with the authorities that he could swim to shore every now and then, just as long as he returned to the ship at night. So every couple weeks, he'd make the half-hour swim. And then he would end up back on the boat, continuing to search for a way to get back home. So Mohammed at this point has sent emails to and, you know, phone calls to everyone he could think of. All of them had come up short, come up empty-handed. Throughout all this, Mohammed's phone was the only tool he had to keep fighting for his release. And it had become his most important possession. I think I really noticed when we were interviewing him, he, he, he has to have it in his hands. He needs to grip it and make sure that it's safe because for four years, it really was his only window to the outside world. And um, I just remember the moment when he was describing it and then he lifted it up and he said, you know, without this, I would be dead. In December last year, three and a half years into his ordeal, Mohammed finally reached someone who had some experience with this sort of problem. A union delegate called Mohammed Arashedi, a very senior guy who's been working in shipping industry for many decades. Mohammed's case comes across his desk. And even though he's had all this experience, he's never seen anything like this before. And so he decides to take it into his hands to try to kind of elevate and escalate Mohammed's case. Arashedi first tried to go through the formal channels. He proposed a solution that had worked in other situations. He asked the Egyptian courts, what if a different person takes on the legal guardianship in Muhammad's place? Mr. Arashedi finds somebody else 
to take his place as the legal guardian of the ship, not someone who ever needs to set foot on the ship, and in fact, just another union delegate. But months passed and there was no response. There seemed to be only one thing left to do. Arshedi told Mohammed to go to the press. And then the BBC, the British Broadcasting Corporation, hear about his story, and they broadcast a short telephone conversation with Mohammed, which reaches their Arabic service. Now, people in the Egyptian authorities hear about this, and the case starts to become ungummed. At a certain point, it looks like Mohammed is going from being lost in this bureaucratic netherworld to potentially becoming a bit of an embarrassment. And Mohammed's uh, situation ends up getting expedited. With this international attention, the Egyptian court system accepted Arashedi's solution. They let a union volunteer replace Mohammed as legal guardian of the ship. And so, last month, Mohammed was free to go home. After approximately 1,430 days, Mohammed finally stepped off the boat for good. Today, Mohammed is back with his family in the city of Tartus in Syria. And we wanted to know how he was doing, so we asked Joe for his number. Hey, Mohammed. Hi, how are you? I'm good, how are you? Can you hear me okay? Yeah, I can hear you well. Where are you right now? Right now, I'm down the stairs from uh, my uncle's house. We're invited here for iftar. Mohammed was talking to us from the stairwell, about to celebrate with his family. How does it feel to be home? It feels great to be home. I mean, I was in a solitary prison, and now I'm finally released from that prison. You can't describe the feeling. It's a great feeling. Can you tell me about the moment that you stepped off the plane and, and saw your family for the first time? Yes, it was a great moment. Actually, the, the moment the plane took off from Cairo airport, I was finally, I uh, took a very big inhale, then an exhale. Oh, I'm finally free. While Muhammad is back at home, the MV Amman is still sitting in the Suez Canal. And it's not the only boat that's waiting. It's happening more. The problem is that just as we're becoming far more reliant on these men who are delivering us these goods across the seven seas, more and more of them are being abandoned and not being paid, are stuck on these boats in parts of the world where the regulations have not been tightened. Even on the Ever Given, the ship that blocked the Suez Canal, the crew members are still on that ship. And as we go into now probably very extended legal battles over who owes the money for when the canal was, uh, was blocked, those crew members could also be on that ship for a long, long time. Mohammed's case was extreme, but it also happens. Now, you probably won't believe this, but Mohammed, he's studying for his captain's exams. You know, he has, he clearly has a kind of inner strength and a sort of iron will. He's decided, despite it all, he wants to keep moving up and he wants to be the captain uh, of a cargo ship. I do what I've been doing, like I said, since I was 19 years old. I will be a captain and that's what I do and I love it. But the day we spoke to him, Mohammed had other things to attend to. What are your plans today for Iftar with your uncle? 
they having this feast specially for me and I'm st- I still haven't gotten up there yet. Okay, so all I'm right. I'm going to have to wait and see. <laughs> okay, well, I'll let you go then so you can be with your family. So thank you so much. Okay, okay. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. That's all for today, Friday, May 21st. The Journal is a co-production of Gimlet and the Wall Street Journal. Special thanks to Drew Hinshaw for his reporting in this story. Your hosts are Kate Leinbaugh and me, Ryan Knudsen. The show is produced by Catherine Brewer, Gerard Cole, Pia Gadkari, Martin Kessler, Annie Minoff, Laura Morris, Afif Nasuli, Ricky Nevetsky, Enrique Perez, Sarah Platt, Willa Rubin, Annie Rostrasser, and John White. Our engineers are Griffin Tanner and Nathan Singapak, with help from Matthew Bull and Emma Munger. Our theme music is by So Wiley. Additional music this week from Marcus Bagala, Peter Leonard, Bobby Lord, Emma Munger, So Wiley, and Blue Dot Sessions. Fact-checking by Nicole Pasolka. Thanks for listening. See you Monday.